Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. Uh, if you have been with St. Thomas for the last few weeks, you may have noticed some color changes as we've gone through for the last four or five weeks. We were white for Easter, right? The, the stoles, that's what you call the sort of sash thing, is a stole. Uh, and they were white for Easter, red for Pentecost, white again for Trinity Sunday, and now they're green. And, and if you haven't been with St. Thomas long or haven't been with the Anglican Church long, you, you might wonder what's with the color changes. Green is for ordinary time. The colors reflect the season. Uh, and we're entering into a long stretch, a long season of ordinary time. But I uh, just want to be clear, when we say ordinary time, we don't mean boring time or like business as usual time. Uh, that's not what the church means when we say ordinary. Ordinary means ordained time. So, for example, when I was going, uh, when I was beginning the ordination process, I met with a representative of the bishop. And representatives of the bishop are sometimes called canons. And uh, this was the canon to the ordinary. He was the representative of the bishop that helped with ordinations, right? So ordinary means ordained time. This season, which kicks off with Pentecost and Trinity Sunday, is the time of the church. It's the ordained time of the people of God who are ordained and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. This is our get busy time. Our go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit time. And as we get going, it's appropriate that the Old Testament lesson for this week then is one of the great foundational stories of the Bible that gets at these central issues of who are we? What is the state of things? What is God doing? How did we get here? And, and most importantly, what, where is the gospel, right? And if you don't see the gospel in this Genesis story, don't worry, we're gonna get there in a minute. The, the church historically has always interpreted this as the first utterance of the gospel. There's, there's a revelation here about what God is going to be doing. Sometimes we call it the Proto-Evangelium, which is just Latin for the first gospel. Um, so today I would like to spend some time working through the story of the fall, or in our family we call it the story of the sin snake. Uh, there's a great uh, Jesus storybook Bible that has, is really, does this story really well, and my children just picked up calling it the sin snake. And so when we talk about this, uh, we'll talk about the story of the sin snake. Um, but first off, I just want to say, we need to understand that this story is, is really about all of us. And there's a way in which Scripture says that, there's a way in which we truly are all present in that story. Um, St. Paul says, in Adam all die. That is, we're all there in the garden. There's a, uh, there's a singer, songwriter named Sarah Groves, um, who wrote a song, this is maybe 15, 20 years back. She wrote a song called Generations, and there's this great line in there where she says, If I were honest with myself, had I been standing at that tree, my hands and my lips would be covered with fruit, with things I shouldn't know and things I shouldn't see. And, and the song is great. I would add that there's a way scripturally in which she and all of us really were standing at that tree. Um, so let, let me explain that just a little bit, because we tend to think of identity as being pretty individualized, right? I am, I am a distinct person. A lot of times in uh, American society, we tend to sort of separate ourselves from uh, what my community does doesn't have a lot to do with me, what my family does doesn't have a lot to do with me. Um, th but that's not really the way that scripture talks about people. Your identity is, is in your family. You as an individual matter, but that familial identity is still central to how you interact with the world. Now, now, for some of you, this just got really uncomfortable. So hold on a minute. We're going to get there. We're going to sort of 
uh, explain how family gets transformed in the kingdom of God. But to understand that transformation, you have to understand what's being transformed, right? And so you have to understand the sort of Old Testament vision of individuals. Uh, Joseph Atkinson, no relation to Father Daniel, uh, is a scholar of scripture and Hebrew anthropology, and he writes, uh, there's, the individual is viewed in the Old Testament in terms of an organic continuity with past generations. The child was never seen to be autonomous, rather his existence was mysteriously and inextricably bound up with past generations from which he came. In some mysterious passion, everything that happened to Israel happened to each generation of Israel as well. Now, like I said, Jesus is going to transform this, and we'll get there in a minute. He's going to redefine family and lineage, but first we need to understand where he comes from. And so we're going to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis. So, Genesis 3, then, is where we're at today. The story here is large. It's, it's, I mean, it's just a, it's a long reading. It's critically important. Um, we're going to trace just a single thread through the story today. All right, so we're not going to get to all of them. I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit. Uh, but it's worth, it's worth going back and studying. I mean, this is one of the great stories of Scripture, like I said. Um, but for, we're going to jump to what happens just after the fall today. So we're going to skip over the temptation today. Uh, before we go further, though, I want to clarify what the tree is, what the fall is about. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right, what is this talking about? Uh, the first thing to know is that the tree is not evil, not by itself, right? God created it. Everything God created is good, right? We affirm this in, um, as believers that God doesn't create anything evil. Um, so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing by itself, and neither is the knowledge of good and evil. Um, God knows good and evil. It says right after our passage, uh, God says, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. So God is in possession of this knowledge. What it means to know good and evil, then, is this, to be determinate of the moral value of things, to have a knowledge that is determinate of moral value. It's not just that you know that some things are bad, right? Adam and Eve knew that eating the tree was bad, for instance. It means that you have authoritative knowledge about what is and is not good, that you yourself are capable of deciding good and bad. Now, God possesses such knowledge by his very being. He is good. Everything he creates is good. But Adam and Eve are not in this kind of position. Their knowledge can't be self-referential, right? But in seizing this knowledge of good and evil, and grasping this role for themselves, what they have to do is re redefine good and evil in reference to themselves. And that's what we see them do. From the moment in this story, every interaction that they have, from the moment that they eat the fruit until after God intervenes, Every act of the man and the woman, of Adam and Eve, is constituted by a reorganization of the moral world around themselves. Everything they say and do reflects a belief in the moral world where the good is what is good for the self. How does this play out? Right. This, we see this in our own lives, right? This, sort of, this temptation to view, to look out for number one, to view what is good in terms of how it impacts me. And we see that with them, just like with us, the first casual, casualty of this is community, is intimacy. Their intimacy with one another, right? They, they realize they're naked and they clothe themselves. Why? Because they realize that they're vulnerable to one another. That's what nakedness means. It means openness, unguardedness, intimacy. It means the ability to be together as a generative community. 
ranked the fruitful, multiplying full of the earth. And this, this was their work that God had given them, but they, they rejected it, right? As soon as they eat, they realize they're naked, and what do they do? They close themselves off to one another. And this is one of those instances where the causes and effects of sin are sort of intertwined, right? Because they are rejecting one another, they're rejecting the commandment of God, but they're also responding to a very real danger that they represent to one another. If your moral world, if your moral world, that's hard to say, is determined by you, then you represent a very real danger to me, right? If, if you sort of live in this world where everything is about what's good for you, then I can't trust that. And so um, they respond with this self-protection. There's one commentator that's writing about this from a, a psychological perspective. He says, this is the beginning of ego defense, right? Which is like sort of a therapeutic concept, but this idea that we have to hide ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. That's what happens immediately as they reorganize the world according to what's good for the, first, for the individual. Community is destroyed. The second consequence is, along the same lines, is destruction of intimacy with God. So listen to what the text says. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God, right? He's approaching, and they hid. And the man said, he's skipping a little bit, and the man says, I was afraid, I heard you, and I was afraid, because I was naked. Now, I want to I be clear here. This isn't remorse, right? This isn't, he realizes he's done a bad thing, and, and now he's, he's sad about it. That's not what's going on here. Remorse drives us to reconnection. It drives us to repentance, to restoration. What's going on here is Adam is protecting himself. He's saying, I heard you and realized that you were a danger to me, that I was naked before you, right? that I'm vulnerable to you, and that that is not good. There's this reorganization of good and evil. Connection to God now is not good. It represents a danger. A danger to what? To me, to my autonomy. And as we move into Adam's responses, this becomes even more clear, right? This animosity continues. God asks him, did you eat of the fruit? And he said, what does he say? He says, the woman that you gave to me, gave it to me, and I ate. Where, so did you do a bad thing? No, the bad thing was here, was the woman, and also you, God, because you put her here. Right, he's shifting. And the woman does the same thing. She says, the serpent gave it to me. So we're past honest communication. Instead of truth and clarity, where we have subversion in communication. And the Lord hears this, and the Lord passes judgment, and that's what comes next. I'm going to skip over a lot of this passage. There's, I mean, it's just a fascinating story to read and to try and understand the patterns going on and what God says. Uh, but what I want to highlight today is just the second part of God's address to the serpent. Right? The first part is about you're going to slither on the ground, you're going to eat dust. Um, but up, And that makes sense for a snake. But up to this point, there's a little bit of ambiguity. What's going on here with this serpent? Where does it come from? It says it's a beast of the field, but snakes don't talk, right? Other animals don't talk. Um, and why is this particular serpent interested in deceiving? Is it a snake? Is it some kind of spiritual force? A demon? Maybe a, the devil himself? At, at this point in the story, we find out later, right in Scripture, but at this point in the story, it's ambiguous. But we get to the second address that God makes, and it's like you can imagine God looking past the serpent, or looking deeper into the serpent. He's not under any delusions about what is going on, and so he addresses directly this malevolence, this enemy that has come into his garden, that has, that has sought, tried to ruin his creation. 
And God responds to this rebellion with a declaration of war. And because he's God, he promises not only the war, but he promises how it's going to end, right? From the very beginning, he lays out what's going to happen. And so he says, first off, there will be strife between you and the woman. I'm not going to leave her entrapped to you. The, the serpent has come and deceived the woman and used her as his agent of destroying the garden. And God says, we're not going to stay there. He redeems the woman in this moment. And he promises war that will go on across time and across generations. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. Right? Her and eventually, at the culmination of history, her descendant will crush the serpent. But in doing so, he's going to receive this fatal wound. There's this idea of trading blows, right? Um, you get, he gets bit in the heel, but it's bit by a, a bit of a snake, is the idea. And this, by the way, is why Adam names Eve, Eve, the mother of life. There's a, it, Eve is my favorite name in the Bible, and the reason is because it's this, this declaration of belief in the promise of God, that, all, that life will come from her in the midst of all of this death. Now, before we jump to the obvious application of this, right, we, we know, because we know the end of the story, so we know who God's talking about, but before we get there, I just want to point out that the immediate question of the text for the reader is whose descendant are you? Who, do you belong to the serpent or to the woman, right? And that actually is the question, if you can read all of Genesis this way if you want, and really all the rest of Scripture. There's this, this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? So we see this in Cain and Abel, the next story is about a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And, and what we find is that it's not just biological, right? There, there's this winnowing effect that happens through Scripture. So it's not all the descendants of Adam and Eve that are the seed of the woman. It's Abel and Seth. And then it's not all the descendants of Seth, but Noah, right? And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not, not Esau, Jacob, right? And then we get to the kingdom of Israel. And as the winnowing continues, we get to this moment of crisis. We get to this moment of crisis where there are no faithful Israelites. And it seems like there aren't any seed of the woman left, right? Israel has been exiled and then it's, it's conquered. And it seems like there's not any hope. And at this moment, it's right here that God himself steps into the role. God himself takes on the mantle of being the seed of the woman, right? And do you see what's happening here? There's, there's this familial language. That's going to be important in a minute, right? This, this idea of generations, of, of something to do with a generative community, because that was the first commandment, be multiply, or uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay. So then you fast forward a couple thousand years, right, or however many, to... Um, that's not, a, that's not a claim on history, I just mean you fast forward a bit, uh, to this conversation that Jesus is having, right? And I, I, at this point in the text, I ask myself a question, why is Jesus talking about family? Why is that the metaphor? Why this metaphor and not another one? Why not talk about master-servant relationship? This seems more appropriate between God and his creation, right? Or why not talk about citizenship in the kingdom? It's not the most natural metaphor. None of the people in Jesus' inner circle are his relatives, right? We know that his relatives are there in the story, but they're not, uh, if you actually remember in the gospel reading, they're sort of on the outside, trying to figure out who Jesus is and worried that he might be crazy. Um, but I think there are two reasons that Jesus uses a family metaphor, right? And he talks about his mother and brothers and sisters. The first is because he's playing explicit, explicitly on this theme, on this question that gets taken up into the identity of Israel. 
right? The Jewish self-understanding is that they are the seed of the woman, that Israel is the seed of the woman. And so Jesus is identifying himself with this new locus of the family, as this new locus of the family of God. It's my family, Jesus is saying. He's saying, you are wanting to be a part of, what you're wanting to be part of is my family. That's what you should be concerned with. Are you my brother and sister or mother? And as he takes this up, he's restoring it and transforming it. He's restoring this identification with God back to the original issue. Who counts as the family of God? Those who do the will of God. Right? That was the original issue in the garden, was who gets to determine good and evil. But he's also transforming. He's transforming whose family it is. Right? Jesus says, you will be my mother and brother and sister if you do the will of my father. This familial language gets imported into their connection with God. And this is something This is something new. This isn't what anyone was looking for. If you look at Genesis 3, there's a clear distinction between the man and the woman and God. Right? There's not, there's not a sort of boundary confusion there. What happens, happens to them. God's not identified with them. And yet we see that God already knew the plan. When he told the serpent how the battle would end, he knew that it would be himself. That he, God, would crush the serpent. And he knew that it would be his own heel that would be struck by the serpent. And so we see that the plan of God has to do with, with God's identification with us. That the only way that redemption comes is through God welcoming us bringing us into himself, right? That's how the redemption happens, is through this identification and this redemption. And there's a way in which it's, it's playing on the sort of original theme of the sin, right? There's this idea in theology called the Felix Culpa, comes from St. Augustine, Felix Culpa just means the happy fall, that God takes whatever we, it's kind of like what Joseph says to his brothers, whatever we intended for evil, God takes and turns into something more beautiful. So we, we seize for ourselves this knowledge of good and evil, and God says, well, the only way this is going to work is if you have me inside of you, right? If I'm identified with you, because that's where the knowledge of good and evil comes from, is God. And so he puts his spirit inside of us. He writes his law on our hearts, the prophets say. And so God uses even the devil's attempts to destroy his creation, even our own rebellion against him, to craft something beautiful and astounding. And so as we move into ordinary time, this is the picture we've got, right? What is the work of God? The work of God is the indwelling of God in the church, is the empowering of us to pursue the work of God in the world through identification with the Spirit, through the indwelling of the Spirit. As we move into ordinary time, may we pursue the work of God in the world by the power of the Spirit made indwell us in our hearts, and may we rejoice in our place in the family of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.